0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will be considering verses 14 and 15 this morning. I have to tell you, yesterday I attended a graduation service, my, my last as a teacher for Heritage Christian Academy, after four years. And I have sweet um, memories with that graduated class um, and they started at me about January. They were taking polls from teachers, finding out which ones were going to cry, and I was like, I'm not going to do it, and they were kind of sad about that. I said, but I don't cry. I don't do it. Don't tell them that um, because I can make it through an entire service of students I've had for four years, and I can't make it two minutes and do a baptism. I'm like 0 oh, for 3 on that, but there's something special, isn't it? There's something special about your community, about your church, About your family, about the children, that that brings us together, that reminds us of God's purpose for our lives, that reminds us of God's calling, that reminds us this is how things are meant to be serving, loving, sacrificing, giving, sharing, struggling together. That's how God has designed it. And that's what is intended. I love those baptism questions, and I love that question of you because now you're stuck. It's part of your job to help raise this child and all of the children that you have stood and taken those vows of. And I am so delighted to know that you keep those vows and that you take them very seriously. And I'm encouraged as the families are as well. And this morning, we're going to learn a little bit more about what Christian community looks like. And we're going to learn a few more of those tasks, a few more of those challenges, a few more of those obligations that you have toward each other. We talked about last week in verses 12 and 13 what the responsibilities of those in leadership are and how we are to react to that. Well, in 14 and 15, Paul finishes his thought on what does the community do and how do they react in this manner? All in all, we know that the Lord's desire for us is to grow. But I do want to give just one statement of um, encouragement. Um, when we talk about growing as a church, often people think about growing numerically. And that is certainly, if the Lord blesses us that way, that is fantastic. But no, sometimes growth is depth, not width. And as long as we are faithful to God's word, as long as we heed this call to Christian community, and we struggle and we work together, we will grow in love and knowledge of the Lord. And that very mill well may be his calling for this church and for us today. With that in mind, I do invite you to look with me to our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our verses are verse, verses 14 and 15. I'm actually going to walk back to verse 12 so that you get the context. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. the grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever and will accomplish everything that he has set out for it to do. Let us now go to him and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege this morning to hear from your word what it means and what it takes to be a Christian community. Oh Father, we as a young church need to hear this more than ever. We as a society need to hear this more than ever. Lord, we as Christians need to hear this more than ever. And so we ask, help us. Help us to be at peace with one another. Help us to love sacrificially. And to stand up for what is right. And to receive correction when it is needed. And all of that may we do so in the Lord. As you have commanded. We cannot do this on our own strength. And so we ask for your Spirit's help. Send your Spirit now, O Lord. Open our minds, our ears, and our hearts that we might receive your word with gladness and take its truth upon our heart. We ask this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings, were not designed to live in isolation. We're made for fellowship. And this is one of the stronger benefits of an active church. While society seems bent on creating division and disunity... We must be about unity and oneness. After all, we're all part of the body of Christ. For it is one body made of many members. And it's because of this, we must pay particular attention to the spiritual state of one another. Consider this. How much more difficult does your task become when you have a headache? A toothache? When your arm is sore? When one part of your body hurts, it affects the ability to do across the whole body. And it doesn't take much. As one who is prone to migraines will tell you, one migraine and I'm done. I cannot function. So too is the church. When members are hurting, when people are going through difficulty, we must gather around them. We must love them. For they are part of our own body. Now, some people would call that being nosy, busybodying. Some would say, just leave me to care for myself and my own issues and my own situations. But God's Word is clear. That's not how we're designed. We're designed for community. We're designed for fellowship. And Paul will give us this morning two how-tos. That's a bit misleading. You'll see why in a moment. But two how-tos on how we are to live as a Christian community. In fact, in verse 14, we'll see that, how to live as a Christian community. But equally important and tied to that in verse 15 is how to forgive in a Christian community. For as we strive to do the one, it's going to be necessary to need the other. And so let us go back into our text and consider both how to live and how to forgive together. Just as I mentioned last week, if you were with us, Paul is quite literally running out of room on the page. You can see how much time we have left in this chapter. And he's writing as much as he can. This is very typical of Paul. If you go to the end of any of his letters, you'll see this this kind of rapid pace as he gets toward the end. And he wants to give the church as much as he can. He wants to, to see them grow as much as possible. And so here he, he gives this long string of things to do. And you'll notice that each one he gives today speaks to a topic he's already covered in this book. This is not necessarily a list of new teachings, but a reminder of things he's already encouraged us to do. And if you go outside of this book, you can go to any of his other writings and you'll see these similar themes actually keep finding themselves coming forward. Why? Because we need these truths. We need a reminder of these sh- truths. And if it's also worth noting here that I, I mentioned that Paul wrote, wrote this and Paul is writing this, but he's not doing so alone. He's doing it with Timothy, a minister who came to this church. He's doing it with Silas, a missionary alongside Paul and Timothy. Together they planted this church. And they give some pretty strong words, but they do it with the authority and the care that they've already laid the groundwork for. This is not just someone coming up to them for the first time and giving them this list of commands. No, this is someone who has poured into their lives, these men. And they begin, we urge you, brothers. We urge you. That is strongly suggest that is deeply implied that is we tell you with great care and great concern that you hear us and that you listen he calls them brothers or brothers and sisters because they are equal they are Christians they are under the same banner the under the same heading it's the Christ he's not calling on his apostolic authority here he does not say church listen to me Although he certainly could have, and he had every right to. No, he calls them brothers because what he's going to tell them and what he's going to tell us, he too needed to know. He too needed to learn, and he too needed to follow in his life. And what exactly were the church members supposed to do? Well, he gives us four actions. Like I told you, it's a bit misleading. It's not a two-point sermon. It's like seven. Um, He gives us four actions and his rationale in verse 14. His rationale being this urge from a brother perspective. Urging them because they are united in Christ. And then the doing. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint hearted. Help the weak. And be patient with them all. Now there is a clear call to the leadership for admonishment in verses 12 and 13. It's one of the primary tasks of elders. But here we see that task is not limited only to them. All believers, you brothers, remember he's talking to the church here, you brothers, admonish the idol. And so one of the reasons I wanted to read that in its context is we can't simply pass off tasks to the leadership. We can't say, oh, well, that's someone else's job. No. You brothers admonish the idol. Now we do have to be careful and admonishment is to um, correct or to reprove or rebuke, um, but that has to be done out of a sense of love and out of a sense of God's word and preserving the individual. It's not a chance to call someone out for their wrongdoing. It's a chance to love someone and to teach them and to walk with them through difficult times. And when we think about This church, the Thessalonican church, what was their specific issue? Well, their idol or idleness was quite literally that. We had people in the church that were so convinced Jesus was coming any day now that they stopped working, that they stopped supporting their families in the church, and they became a burden. They didn't do anything. They weren't very helpful. And so what Paul and his co-laborers were saying is admonish them. Church, rebuke them. Church, correct them. Church, bring them back in. This cannot be so. And he's taught at great length on both of these topics, the one of admonishment and on being idle. Now, what he's not saying here is this is not a call to get everyone off the streets and into jobs. That's not the task of the church. Would be good if, it, if we did. And maybe in our own personal lives, that may be our case. But this is not energize the masses. That's not what's going on here. It's very narrow focused. It's very specific to the church. He says, brothers in Christ, those of you in Christ, admonish the idol in Christ. It would be a good way to read this. But tied to that, and there were certainly people in the church who were being lazy as it came to their own jobs, more so, and I think this is really where the community comes in, it's it's we must admonish those who have become spiritually idle, because it's one thing for one not to work and, and one not to complete their task, that offers harm to themselves. But for one who becomes spiritually idle and neglects the means of grace, they become a danger to their very souls. And if we love someone, if we care for someone, if we call them a part of our body and we can let them walk by not caring and tending for themselves spiritually, then that's not love. It's not loving to let someone walk by, to, to sit in sin, to go uncorrected, it's cruelty. It's, it's, it's downright cruelty, and I believe it's to that that Paul says, you Christians, you church, you admonish the idol amongst you. Now, recognize in all of this, and, and we're going to talk about this a little more, we all have to be willing to receive it as well, because <laughs> we are all prone to each of these behaviors. This is not something that some of us are going to struggle with and some of us are not, but we're all prone to each one of these. And as much as we need to be willing to lovingly correct one another, we also need to be lovingly ready to receive it when we ourselves get that correction. Because remember, the goal is to bring one another together to strengthen the bond of the church that we might all the more glorify the Lord. The second action that church members must take to preserve Christian community, it's admonish the idle and then encourage the faint-hearted. And this is very similar to admonishment, but the object is different. You don't have people who aren't doing anything. You have people who have become overcome by the weight of it all. Maybe they're lacking courage. Maybe it's, it's been through repeated attempts at something with little to no success. Maybe it, it comes from a, what if I fail? This idea or this mindset of, I don't know if I can handle rejection again. I don't know if I can keep up the struggle. We're called to encourage those. You know, if you follow the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you'll notice that they often became faint-hearted, didn't they? Especially when they trusted on their own strength. They were prone to discouragement while resting in what they could do. When they forgot who their God was and what he could do. Think about this. clearly seen in the story of David and Goliath. Why couldn't any of the soldiers face Goliath? They most certainly could have. They worshipped the God who was greater than Goliath. They, They served the Lord. They were of his army. And yet they cowered in fear. And David, a little boy, was able to come. And he was able to stand. My God is greater than you. I will not fear you. I will not fear what you can do to me because God will deliver. And He did. You see, when we look toward ourselves, when we look on our own strength, when we look to our own courage, our own ability, we will come up short. It's only when we look to the Lord that we see the strength that we are able to endure. And that's why I said this is prone to all of us. We all will find ourselves in seasons overcome with just the weight of this world and the weight of the struggle of this life. That's why we need to be in it together. That's why we need to be there to pick one another up. For you may have already gone through a season that someone else is finding themselves in for the first time. You may have endured where they are failing and you can come to one another. You can love One another together and you can walk through the fires together. John says it well in 1 John 4.4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. To put it differently, we're called to lift one another up when we get discouraged. And we need to hear this, don't we? We need this reminder. Well, the third action that the church must take in order to have a healthy community is to help the weak. James, the brother of Jesus, calls true religion this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. The apostles commissioned the role of deacon so that this task not be neglected amongst the church members. But they did not do it just so the church could ignore the call. It's not like, well, you have deacons, problem solved. No, church, this is your job to help the weak. We must care for one another. Jesus Christ demonstrated a level of compassion for the disciples and for his followers that must inspire the same out of us. We cannot simply enter the building on Sunday, fellowship, and hear God's word together and then go home into our own little kingdoms and ignore each other until the following week. Now, this is a lot harder in a commuter society, um, and this is even more difficult in a quarantine COVID-19 society. And so I, I admit what I'm saying to you is not easy in this current epoch, and yet God's words are timeless, and they stand true. And so somehow we must keep this mandate, even in the season we live in, Cell phones still work, and I'm preaching to myself on that one, I promise you. We all just agreed to help raise this child in love and admonition of the Lord. There's nothing more loving you can do for their family in following these commands than keeping your word, than doing what you all just agreed to do. And that's how we change this world. That's how we as a church, we raise godly families, we raise children to love the Lord, and they get married and have children and raise godly families, and there's this beautiful biological pattern that God set up from the beginning that really can transform everything. We are simply called to be faithful. We're called to help those who are weak amongst us. And then finally, Paul gives us his fourth command. And this one kind of encapsulates all of them, doesn't it? Be patient with them all. Be patient. Loving people takes patience. Serving sinful human beings while being sinful ourselves takes a lot of forgiveness. It takes a lot of I am sorry's. But my friends, it is worth it. People do not need to see you as perfect. More often than not, they need to see you as available. There's a reason that patience is the fruit of the Spirit, or one of the fruit of the Spirit. We will need God's help in all of this. And growing in this area, growing in patience, is a way in which we grow in godliness. Think about it. For the Thessalonican church, they were born under adversity. This came from being a mixed ethnic congregation of Jew and Gentile, as well as an economically diverse congregation. They, for the first time, had to learn to deal with people in different classes, different backgrounds, different identities. And it created strife in the church, but more so out of the church. This is what ran Paul off. Paul, a man who was very firm in his willingness to proclaim the gospel, had to leave this church due to the oppression that it faced. And as he left, and we read in the first few chapters of this book, he feared for their lives, but more importantly, he feared for their salvation. For he did not know if they could withstand the trials that were going to come upon them. And yet, it's to that group he says, be patient, love, admonish, help, serve. And what's so beautiful about this book and and what we learn from Timothy when he comes back with his report is that that happened. The church grew despite Paul not being there. The church grew despite the affliction. I would say the church grew because of the affliction, because of the trials, because of the hardship. And if we take each of these together, we get this beautiful road map on how to live well with one another. That's how we should see it. We should see it as life together together. And I guarantee you that if outsiders see us practicing this in our own community, one of two things are, are, it will happen. One, they will deem us nosy and want to have nothing to do with us because we seem to want to be in everybody's lives and what's going on, and we seem to always be focused on someone else. Or, and, and this I've found far more often to be the case, they will look at us and go, I really wish someone would do that for me. I really wish someone would care that much for me and for my life and for my difficulties and for my hurts and for my shortcomings. Where can I find more of that? And almost as if Paul knew that we would come to this place, he then teaches us another very important truth. For if we really do try to do this, if we really do seek these steps, if we really do make this a point of our church, we're going to have to learn our second point as well. And that is how to forgive. How to forgive in a Christian community. Look with me at verse 15. And we need to be honest. Life in the first century was hard. I know that things are grim in our community if you actually watch the news. um, But it has not reached the level of persecution we saw in the first century church, not yet. And this is important because it makes what Paul says even more shocking. The church had endured much at this point. It matters were only going to get worse. There's this natural temptation within us to wish for retaliation. And I'm not talking about God bringing judgment upon His enemies and the enemies of the church. That, I believe, is righteous. That we're told to pray for in the Psalms. That we're actually commanded to, to seek Lord's return and the Lord's judgment. But... We as humans, often we can be a bit petty. We want to see people suffer for suffering. We want to see people who have caused harm to be harmed. And not in a a God's righteousness way, but in a human, almost sadistic sense of, but they need that. Paul doesn't give us any opportunity to have that thought. See that no one, no other way to translate that, repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul has spent a lot of time in this book and in this chapter telling Christians what we should do. Here he states it in the negative. He doesn't say do good to those who do good. No, he says do not repay evil for evil. You will receive evil. It will come. It will happen. We live in a fallen world, but you cannot. You must not repay it with evil. I mean, and I think a lot of people would say, okay, that sounds fair. You know, when we hear the biblical word evil, nothing nice comes to mind. You've got a gradient. Um, you could go from kicking puppies to stealing purses um, or murder, rape, grand theft. You've got a whole spectrum. You're like, that is evil. That's said, yeah, we shouldn't do that. But let's think about that word for a moment, evil. Wickedness. And let's turn it a little bit and call it what it is, sin. Sin. And if we use that word instead of the word evil, the confession tells us this. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now let's restate. See that you do not sin against anyone who has sinned against you, for you will be sinned against. This is when we go, oh, that's a lot harder, isn't it? That makes it a lot more complicated. You know, you could go to the Old Testament and and, and some of the scholars like to and go to the Jewish law and they could read an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and under Jewish system and the Jewish nation that was allowed. um, But even then it wasn't encouraged. You had the right to evoke this. You had the right to stone an adulterous person. But it's not that you should. It's that legally you you had that authority in doing so. But what does Jesus say? He who is without sin casts the first stone. In fact, Jesus quite plainly says, Do good to those who harm you. Now, I understand. Sometimes life's not fair. Good people receive bad things and bad people receive good things but what does Paul say to that there are none who are good no not one none of us deserve anything we are all evil we are all wicked we all seek ourselves we all have turned astray from God apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and so because we have received mercy and grace and love and forgiveness and honor and a name and an identity when we didn't deserve it then we too then must not pay any evil for evil instead do good to one another and everyone. And Paul is intentional there with that. That sounds a bit redundant, but remember, he's talking to the church about the church, so seek to do good to one another, everyone in here, and then and to everyone. That's everybody else. So the people that are in the room and the people that are out of the room, well, that covers everybody. He's making a point here that that it's not that this command, this specific command, while a lot of them dealt with just the church community, this is universal. We must seek to do good even to those whose intent is to harm, even those who hate God, even those who reject God, even those who turn their back on God actively and willingly. For such a time, so were you. Paul, on his way to persecute more Christians after leaving a site in which he had persecuted Christians. Don't you think he of all people didn't deserve God's forgiveness? Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This coming from a man who calls himself a Pharisee amongst all Pharisees. That is our call as a church. We must forgive one another. We must love one another. We must not pursue evil. And yet... We must seek to pursue good. But we have a case study even better than Paul. Jesus Christ himself, on the cross, asked for forgiveness for whom? The very soldiers that were putting him there. As he was actively being killed, he called out to God for forgiveness for the people that were doing it. When he was on the cross, and when he gave up his breath, the sins of you and I who trust in him, That's what cost him his life. We live because he died. Seek that you do no evil to those who have done evil to you. Instead, do good to those who do not deserve it. In fact, to everyone. Why? Because your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did not withhold good to those that are evil. He did good to all whom God had given. Jesus forgave them. We must not grow weary of hearing the gospel story, for in it we find the keys of loving our neighbors as ourselves. We find forgiveness greater than can compare. We find rest. And lastly, we find the strength needed to live together, knowing that it will not be perfect until Christ returns again. But by God's grace, it can be anything better than this world has to offer. And so I challenge you as words of conclusion. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let us pray. Lord, these words are easy to say, but oh, how they are hard to apply to our lives. We know our own hearts, our own selfish desires, our own sinful attitudes, and we ask for forgiveness, and we ask for strength to overcome. Lord, I pray that you would make us a community that so loves one another that we would rid sin from this place, that we would seek to forgive one another, that we would be a community who does good to even those who seek to do us harm. For by doing so, we will share the good news of the gospel, the news of forgiveness, undeserved forgiveness, unmerited favor, and of hope, a hope that this world desperately needs. Oh, Lord, please make us as a church, a church who strives to do these very things. We thank you for this opportunity to hear your word. We ask now that you apply it to our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.